0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 274. It's titled Ten Questions to Master Successful Investing. Just over two years ago, I received an email from Paul Lucas of the literary agency Janklo and Nesbit. He had been listening to my podcast for six months or so, was a fan. His father used to be a Wall Street analyst, so Paul mentioned that he found many of the topics on the show both familiar and engaging. He wrote, One of my dreams is to represent a useful book that could live forever, a modern version of the only investment guide you'll ever need. I was wondering if you were interested in pursuing a book and if it is something you'd like to discuss with me. The only investment guide you ever need came out in 1978. It was written by Andrew Tobias. It's a good book, but it's 40 years old. It's a classic investment book. So this idea of a useful book that could live on for decades, I admit, it piqued my interest. So I had some calls with Paul, and I decided to write a book. I was reminded recently how the right book at the right time can change your life. My daughter and I were recently in Ohio to visit family, and we attended my 40th year reunion for my 8th grade graduating class from St. Margaret Mary in North College Hill, Ohio. One of my friends was there, and I don't think I have seen him maybe since I left school, because most of my friends went to private Catholic high schools, and I went to public school. He might have been at the 10th year reunion, but as soon as I saw him, I thought of the sled. My mother had a sled growing up. It was a flexible flyer. We used it as kids. When I was 10 or 11, snowing, I'm out with my friends, we're going sledding. I happened to leave the sled at my friend's house in his storage shed. I didn't think about it for several weeks. And then it was a month. And by then it was spring. There was no snow. And I was embarrassed to go walk the three blocks to his house to get the sled. Because I didn't want anyone in my neighborhood watching me walk down the road in spring with a sled. Now, that's pretty pathetic, but that was my mindset as a 10- or 11-year-old. But then my mom began to sell real estate, and all these books started coming into my life, classic books. that had been around for decades, and I read them. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill came out in 1937. How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, 1936. Richest Man and Babylon, George S. Clayson, 1926. The Magic of Thinking Big came out in the 50s. The Greatest Salesman in the World, Mandino, 1968. A newer one, Zig Ziglar, See You at the Top. We had tapes about Zig Ziglar, and we also had tapes from Stephen R. Covey, who hadn't published Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but he had tapes about it. And he actually came to Cincinnati a few times when I was in my teens or early teens and had a profound influence. Those books changed my mindset. I don't even remember what most of them were about. Zig Ziglar said, don't kick the cat. I do remember that. But it instilled in me a greater sense of confidence and a greater understanding, to some extent, of money and how you network to earn money. I haven't touched those books since. I sort of overindulged on self-help sales training books and tapes as a 12- to 14-year-old, so much so that I, I just don't partake anymore. But could an investment book be a classic like that? And how would I go about writing such a book? How would it be different from a podcast? I'm reading a fascinating book right now by Joe Moran titled, First You Write a Sentence. It's a book on writing. Here's a quote. Writing exists not to be wasted on the air like speech, but to be committed to permanence. Now, that doesn't say a whole lot about podcasts. Lots of speech committed to air, but certainly, at least in my case, well-crafted speech, given the number of hours I put into each episode, Another quote, Kurt Vonnegut, novelist, Writing allows mediocre people who are patient and industrious to revise their stupidity to edit themselves into something like intelligence. Writing, it's carving, it's crafting, permanence, it's timeless, one sentence at a time. And that's how a book differs from a podcast. A book can live on. For many, many years. Now, many of you go back and listen to older episodes of the show, but the idea of a book on how to invest, people ask me all the time, do you have any books on how to invest that you recommend? And there are a lot of great investing books out there and personal finance books. I mentioned a lot of them on my show, but they're not how I necessarily approach investing. And they don't teach the principles that I believe are the foundation for how we invest as portfolio managers. You and I are portfolio managers. And a portfolio manager compares different investment opportunities and allocates their money among them. Many of the investment books are very niche in terms of focusing on real estate or picking individual stocks or cryptocurrencies. But in analyzing the market, there really wasn't a book that looked at it and said, well, should you be investing in real estate? or cryptocurrencies, or value stocks. And how do you decide that? Back in episode two of three, we covered Annie Duke's book. She is a former professional poker player and decision-making strategist. Her book is Thinking in Bets. She wrote, What makes a decision great is not that it has a great outcome. A great decision is the result of a good process. A great investment decision isn't because it has a great outcome. It is the result of a good investment decision process, an investment philosophy. And that's what I wanted to put in a book, an investing framework, something to help you decide where to invest and how to invest. Annie Duke, I asked her if she would endorse my book. She said she would consider it, but she had to read every single page. So I sent her the draft. She read it. She liked it, and she endorsed it. On the front cover, it says, this is a high-impact framework for making any decision, not just investing. Paul Lucas then contacted me in October 2017. I finished the proposal in January of 2018. A book proposal is essentially a strategic plan for a book. and includes the chapter outline, a couple of sample chapters, marketing plan, where it fits in the market, who's the target audience, What's the author's platform to be able to distribute the book and promote the book? That went into the proposal, and then I started writing it. I was going to write this book, whether it's sold to a traditional publisher or I self-published. So I started writing it in January. Paul sold the project in June to McGraw Hill. And then I spent an entire year, so from January 2018 to January 2019, working on the book, fleshing out. These investment principles on how to invest. Then I sent it to 21 volunteers who are members of Money for the Rest Plus Plus who were willing to review the manuscript. Incredibly helpful. Very, very helpful feedback. Candid feedback. Here's how you can make your book better. One particular feedback that I remember is the fact I actually had a call with this particular Plus member so I could better internalize some of his comments. But he says, this is your book. Stop quoting so many people in your book. And so that I took out many of the quotes I had from investment mentors that I respect and have learned from over time. But that feedback from those 21 members led to additional revisions to make this a better book. I turned the manuscript in March 31st, 2019. My editor, McGraw-Hill, loved it. Didn't have hardly any changes at all other than suggesting that I write a glossary, which I then did. Then it went through a number of rounds of edits, line-by-line copy edits, and then another follow-up editing process, along with the design of the cover and the look of the book. To get something of permanence takes time. I love the process. I love doing the podcast each week and crafting a message sharing stories and principles and examples. But I loved crafting sentences one by one to put into the finalized form. Last week, I was in the studio recording the audiobook. And the audiobook will be on Audible, but not necessarily released at the same time as the hardback book or the ebook. That was a test to see how the book sounded. Now, I've read the book many times out loud. As I was drafting it, but to be able to read the entire thing over three days and get a sense did, at least in my mind, achieve what I hope to accomplish a timeless, useful book on how to invest. Only you will be a judge to see if I met that goal. Malcolm Gladwell says once you release the book, it's no longer yours, it belongs to your readers. It's a gift. And just like with the investment process, I can't control the outcome of how the book is received, I could focus on the writing process and that's what I focused on. What then are the 10 questions to master successful investing? This was the format that I decided to use because it's a checklist of things that we can ask ourselves before we invest in something to allow us to compare one investment opportunity to another. Each chapter is one question. And there are stories, examples, there's tables, there's footnotes, there's references. But these are the questions that I use in terms of how I invest and how I have used as a professional investment manager, structured in a way that hopefully you will find helpful. Before we explore these 10 questions, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. Comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Question one is What is it? Before we invest, we should seek to understand and explain in simple terms an investment's characteristics. The act of explaining keeps us humble and helps us realize what we don't know. Answering the 10 questions discussed in my book forms an investment discipline that can give us confidence in the face of uncertainty. What is it? I share how the chair of the investment committee of a client of mine, one of my first university endowment clients, said, if I can't explain an investment that we're considering to a board member that's not on the committee, then we shouldn't invest. That is true and something that I internalized, some of the best investment advice I have ever received. Then I proceed to give an example how I didn't do a very good job of that with this client as it relates to high-yield bonds. Cognitive scientists Frank Keel and Leon Rosenblatt conducted numerous studies asking people to explain how something as simple as a zipper worked. They found that as individuals tried to verbalize what they knew about a topic, they soon realized they didn't know as much as they thought. The exercise of explaining humbled him. We need to be able to explain in simple terms, perhaps to a friend or a family member, how a particular investment works. Now, usually we don't know at the beginning what it is. We have to do the research. And part of that research focuses on the math and the emotion of investing. The math, what drives the return, such as interest rates, rent, dividends, and the emotion is how investors are valuing those cash flows. Are they placing a premium on them to where subsequent returns will be lower, or do they not care? And the valuations are very, very low, and the subsequent returns will be higher. But it starts with defining what it is. Question two is Is it investing, speculating, or gambling? Classifying financial opportunities by whether they have a greater likelihood to be profitable, to be unprofitable, or have an outcome that is highly uncertain simplifies the investing universe. Our research time is reduced when we focus most of our efforts on financial opportunities that have a positive expected return. This is a theme that we've discussed a number of times on the podcast. Investments. They have cash flow and cash flow growth. Speculations typically don't have cash flow. There's just the price and the hope that someone will pay a higher price in the future. And gambles are something that have a negative expected return. So we can broadly classify investments, speculations, and gambles and focus most of our time on investments. Which leads to the third question, what is the upside? How we can use rules of thumb to estimate an investment's expected return. This allows us to compare different opportunities and make sure our assumptions are reasonable. This is the most challenging chapter in the book. It's the longest chapter by far. It's chapter three. But we go through the rules of thumb for estimating bond returns and stock returns, focusing on those three drivers, the cash flow, the cash flow growth, and what investors are paying for cash flows. And there's a number of examples and tables. And it's the most detailed analysis I've done on how to Estimate the returns for asset classes that I've done. Now that doesn't mean we necessarily have to be able to do that, or should do that. There are great resources to be able to get expected returns for asset classes. Research Affiliates provides those estimates. GMO provides those estimates. Those estimates are available on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, but we at least need to be able to understand how the returns for stocks and bonds, are derived over time. What are those return drivers? Question four is what is the downside? The downside of an investment consists of its maximum potential loss and the personal financial harm caused by that loss. When evaluating an investment's downside, the goal is to avoid irreparable financial harm rather than to avoid any loss at all. If you rule out any possibility of loss in your investing, then you're probably reducing risk too much and your portfolio might not keep pace with inflation. So we look at risk and why investments are volatile and what determines that volatility and how should we manage risk? Risk for us is not volatility. It's the personal financial harm caused by losses, which means risk is different depending on the person. Question five is who is on the other side of the trade? Knowing who is selling us an investment helps us avoid financial instruments where success is dependent on knowing the future and or outsmarting other investors. This is probably the question that we typically don't ask. We don't consider who is selling us an investment because typically we're dealing with some type of an exchange or platform, but we need to understand the dynamics of the market and who's selling it to us. Why are they selling this particular investment to us? Who? are the dominant traders or participants in the market. Back in the early 50s, right after Benjamin Graham published his classic investment work, The Intelligent Investor, most stocks were owned by individuals, which means Graham could get an informational edge. He could learn more about a company and its stock and why it was mispriced just by doing the research. It's way more difficult now because there are so many professional investors and algorithms. So it's hard to get that informational edge. Not that we shouldn't invest in individual stocks, but if you're going to do that, you need to at least understand who you are competing with. The other aspect when it comes to who is on the other side of the trade is what's the likelihood of the transaction going through? Will it fail? And we talk about that in that chapter. Question six is what is the investment vehicle? An investment vehicle is an instrument, product, or container that houses a particular investment strategy. Before investing, we should be able to explain an investment vehicle's attributes, including the expected return, the risk in terms of the expected maximum drawdown, liquidities, fees, structure, and pricing. This chapter takes a deep dive into the structure of investments, particularly ETFs, closed-end funds and mutual funds, and some of the risk with those different vehicles. We did a deep dive last week into exchange traded notes, which are another investment vehicle. We need to know the attributes of the vehicle, how they trade, and what is their liquidity. Question seven is, what does it take to be successful? All investments have return drivers, such as income, cash flow growth, leverage, and other attributes that determine the performance. Successful portfolios have a diversified mix of dependable return drivers that we have identified beforehand. We need to understand what has to happen for us to be successful in an investment. Do we have to be precisely right about something like we do if we buy gold or cryptocurrencies? Someone has to pay more in the future? Or is there Multiple attributes of the investment. Maybe there's cash flow, so the dividends. So even if stocks fall some or bonds fall a little bit, we're getting that cash flow. So this involves factor investing, smart beta, dividend investing, leverage. Sometimes an investment looks attractive because leveraged is being used, borrowed money to make the returns, or at least to increase the expected returns. But we need to be very clear what has to happen for an investment to be successful. More often than not, it goes back to those return drivers. Cash flow, cash flow growth, and what investors are willing to pay for that cash flow now versus the future. Question eight is, who is getting a cut? Successful investors are aware of the entities taking a portion of the return in the form of fees, expenses, and taxes we should make sure we receive sufficient benefits for the fees we pay. We're going to pay fees when we invest. We're going to pay taxes if we're successful investors. There's expense ratios for funds and ETFs. Sometimes we hire an advisor to provide some assistance with our investing. But we need to know that all these fees come out of our return, and we need to make sure that we're getting sufficient benefit for the fees we pay. Question nine is, how does it impact your portfolio? A diversified portfolio consists of a variety of asset categories with different return drivers. We shouldn't approach asset allocation as an optimization problem with a single right answer. Rather, using guidelines and rules of thumb, we have tremendous creative freedom to build an investment portfolio that aligns with our knowledge, interests, and values. This is all about asset allocation topics that we've covered in the podcast. What are the flaws with modern portfolio theory and why asset allocation could be much simpler, focusing on the expected return and the maximum drawdown? How much could we lose in an investment? How long has it typically taken to recover? And what would the personal financial harm be of that? And I go through some detailed examples and some sample portfolios to help make those decisions. The final question is, should you invest? Once we've identified an attractive investment opportunity, we have to decide when and how much to invest. How much to invest is a function of our confidence that an investment will be successful, the reliability of the return drivers for that success, and the personal financial harm caused if the investment falls short of our expectations. When to invest is a function of the amount of money we are seeking to put to work and current market conditions. At the end of the day, we have to decide whether we're going to invest or not and how much. And that gets into perhaps doing dollar cost averaging or investing one lump sum. It involves socially responsible investing. Does the investment align with our values? What's the position size? What about investment conditions and market timing versus risk management? These all are issues when it comes to deciding should we invest invest. Over the past five years, I've covered the principles embodied by these 10 questions multiple times on the podcast, but a book allows me to organize the ideas and express them in the most direct, comprehensive, and entertaining way that I know how. This week was supposed to be the launch week of Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, the ebook and the hardcover. But today, just as I was getting ready to record, my publisher notified me they are recalling all of the hardcover books. It turns out the dust covers were not printed and placed on the books correctly, so that the title on the book spine is not centered. And since most books on the shelves have the spine facing out, if the lettering is not centered, it doesn't look so great. This is obviously extremely disappointing to me, and I'm sure to those of you who pre-ordered the hardcover of the book. My understanding is the ebook will still be available this Friday, October 25th, but the hardcover edition will be delayed a few weeks. Obviously, the ebook has everything contained in the hardcover version, but there is one big difference. You can't easily give the ebook to someone else and say, Here's a great book I recommend. A year ago, I was on a Zoom call with Seth Godin and asked him a question about publishing. As part of his answer, he said, The purpose of a book is not to make the editor or the publisher happy. The purpose of a book is not to get on a bestseller list, which can be easily corrupted. The purpose of a book is to have a substantial physical item that communicates to people with gravitas and permanence a body of work and in a way that they can share with others that will raise their status when they share it. When you give someone a book, you're being generous, but you also want it to make you look good. And a book with a flawed dust jacket doesn't meet that standard. So while I'm disappointed, I respect McGraw-Hill for acknowledging the error and wanting to make it right, even if the decision was made the day before the book was supposed to hit the shelves. Better to wait a few weeks so the hardcover edition of my book is pristine. Thanks for your patience. I'll let you know when the hardcover is available, as well as the audio edition, which will be available also in a number of weeks. That's episode 274. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. This is where I'll send you the links to the references in that week's episode, as well as a essay I do on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week, just to those on that email list, the insider's guide, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.